Section five of About Orchids A Chat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Yearsley. About Orchids A Chat by Frederick Boyle. Chapter four. Cool Orchids. This is a subject which would interest every cultured reader, I believe, every householder at least, if he could be brought to understand that it lies well within the range of his practical concerns. But the public has still to be persuaded. It seems strange to the expert that delusions should prevail when orchids are so common and so much talked of, but I know by experience that the majority of people, even among those who love their garden, regard them as fantastic and mysterious creations, designed to all seeming for the greater glory of pedants and millionaires. I try to do my little part, as occasion serves, in correcting this popular error and spreading a knowledge of the facts. It is no less than a duty. If every human being should do what he can to promote the general happiness, it would be downright wicked to leave one's fellow men under the influence of hallucinations that debar them from the most charming of quiet pleasures. I suspect also that the misapprehension of the public is largely due to the conduct of experts in the past. It was a rule with growers formerly, avowed among themselves, to keep their little secrets. When Mr. B. S. Williams published the first edition of his excellent book, forty years ago, he fluttered his colleagues sadly. The plain truth is that no class of plant can be cultivated so easily, as none are so certain to repay the trouble, as the cool orchids. Nearly all the genera of this enormous family have species which grow in a temperate climate, if not in the temperate zone. At this moment, in fact, I recall but two exceptions, Vanda and Phalaenopsis. Many more there are, of course. Half a dozen have occurred to me while I wrote the last six words. But in the small space at command I must cling to generalities. We have at least a hundred genera which will flourish anywhere, if the frost be excluded and as for species, a list of two thousand would not exhaust them, probably. But a reasonable man may content himself with the great classes of Odontoglossum, Oncidium, Cypripedium, and Lycaste. Among the varieties of these, which no one has ventured to calculate, perhaps, he may spend a happy existence. They have every charm, foliage always green, a graceful habit, flowers that rank among the masterworks of nature. The poor man who succeeds with them in his modest bit of glass has no cause to envy Dives his flaunting Cattleyas and Foxbrush Irides. I should like to publish it in capitals, that nine in ten of those suburban householders who read this book may grow the loveliest of orchids, if they can find courage to try. Odontoglossums stand first, of course. I know not where to begin the list of their supreme merits. It will seem perhaps a striking advantage to many that they burst into flower at any time, as they chance to ripen. I think that the very perfection of culture is discounted somewhat in this instance. The gardener who keeps his plants at the ne plus ultra stage brings them all into bloom within the space of a few weeks, Thus, in the great collections, there is such a show during April, May, and June as the gardens of paradise could not excel, and hardly a spike in the cool house for the rest of the year. At a large establishment this signifies nothing. When the odontoglossums go off, other things come on, with equal regularity. 
but the amateur with his limited assortment misses every bloom he has no need for anxiety with this genus it is their instinct to flower in spring of course but they are not pedantic about it in the least some tiny detail overlooked here and there absolutely unimportant to health will retard fluorescence it might very well happen that the owner of a dozen pots had one blooming every month successively and that would mean two spikes open for with care most odontoglossums last above four weeks another virtue shared by others of the cool class in some degree is their habit of growing in winter they take no rest all the year round their young bulbs are swelling graceful foliage lengthening roots pushing until the spike demands a concentration of all their energy but winter is the most important time i think any man will see the peculiar blessing of this arrangement it gives interest to the long dull days when other plant life is at a standstill it furnishes material for cheering meditations on a sunday morning is that a trifle and at this season the pursuit is joy unmixed we feel no anxious questionings as we go about our daily business whether the placens auxor forgot to remind mary when she went out to pull the blinds down whether mary followed the instructions if given whether those confounded patent ventilators have snapped to again green fly does not harass us one syringing a day and one watering per week suffice truly these are not grave things but the issue at stake is precious we enjoy the boon of relief proportionately very few of those who grow odontoglossums know much about the trade or care seemingly it is a curious subject however the genus is american exclusively it ranges over the continent from the northern frontier of mexico to the southern frontier of peru excepting to speak roughly the empire of brazil this limitation is odd it cannot be due to temperature simply for upon the one hand we receive sophronotis a very cool genus from brazil and several of the coolest cattleyas upon the other odontoglossum roeslii a very hot species and o vexillarium most decidedly warm flourish up to the boundary why these should not step across even if their mountain sisters refuse companionship with the sophronotis is a puzzle elsewhere however they abound collectors distinctly foresee the time when all the districts they have worked up to this will be exhausted but south america contains a prodigious number of square miles and a day's march from the track carries one into terra incognita still the end will come the english demand has stripped whole provinces and now all the civilized world is entering into competition we are sadly assured that odontoglossums carried off will not be replaced for centuries most other genera of orchid propagate so freely that wholesale depredations are made good in very few years for reasons beyond our comprehension as yet the odontoglossums stand in different case no one in england has raised a plant from seed that we may venture to say definitely mr cookson and mr veitch perhaps others also have obtained living germs but they died incontinently frenchmen aided by the climate have been rather more successful messieurs bleu and moreau have both flowered seedling odontoglots monsieur jacob who takes charge of monsieur edmund de rothschild's orchids at armainvilliers has a considerable number of young plants 
The reluctance of odontoglots to propagate is regarded as strange. It supplies a constant theme for discussion among orchidologists. But I think that if we look more closely, it appears consistent with other facts known. For among importations of every genus but this, and Cypripedium, a plant bearing its seed capsules is frequently discovered. But I cannot hear of such an incident in the case of odontoglossums. They have been arriving in scores of thousands, year by year, for half a century almost, and scarcely anyone recollects observing a seed capsule. This shows how rarely they fertilize in their native home. When that event happens, the odontoglossum is yet more prolific than most, and the germs, of course, are not so delicate under their natural conditions. But the moral to be drawn is that a country, once stripped, will not be reclothed. I interpolate here a profound observation of Mr. Roezl. That wonderful man remarked that odontoglossums grow upon branches thirty feet above the ground. It is rare to find them at thirty-five feet, rarer at twenty-five feet. At greater and less heights they do not exist. Here, doubtless, we have the secret of their reluctance to fertilize, but I will offer no comments, because the more one reflects, the more puzzling it becomes. Evidently the seed must be carried above and must fall below that limit, under circumstances which to our apprehension seem just as favorable as those at the altitude of thirty feet, but they do not germinate. Upon the other hand, odontoglossums show no such daintiness of growth in our houses. They flourish at any height, if the general conditions be suitable. Mr. Roezl discovered a secret nevertheless, and in good time we shall learn further. To the Royal Horticultural Society of England belongs the honour of first importing orchids, methodically and scientifically. Messrs. Weir and Fortune, I believe, were their earliest employees. Another was Theodore Hartwig, who discovered Odontoglossum crispum Alexandri in 1842, but he sent home only dried specimens. From these, Lindley described and classed the plant, aided by the sketch of a Spanish or Peruvian artist, Tagala. A very curious mistake Lindley fell into on either point. The scientific error does not concern us, but he represented the colouring of the flower as yellow with a purple centre. So Tagala painted it, and his drawing survives. It is an odd little story. He certainly had Hartwig's bloom before him, and that certainly was white. But then again, yellow Alexandries have been found since that day. To the Horticultural Society we are indebted, not alone for the discovery of this wonder, but also for its introduction. John Weir was travelling for them when he sent living specimens in 1862. It is not surprising that botanists thought it new after what has been said. As such, Mr. Bateman named it after the young Princess of Wales, a choice most appropriate in every way. Then a few wealthy amateurs took up the business of importation, such as the Duke of Devonshire. But the trade came to see presently that there was money in this new fashion, and imported so vigorously that the society found its exertions needless. Messrs. Rollison of Tooting, Messrs. Veitch of Chelsea, and Messrs. Lowe of Clapton distinguished themselves from the outset. Of these three firms, one is extinct, the second has taken up and made its own the fascinating study of hybridization among orchids, the third still perseveres. 
Twenty years ago nearly all the great nurserymen in London used to send out their travellers, but they have mostly dropped the practice. Correspondents forward a shipment from time to time. The expenses of the collector are heavy, even if he draw no more than his due, and the temptation to make up a fancy bill cannot be resisted by some weak mortals. Then grave losses are always probable. In the case of South American importations, certain. It has happened not once, but a hundred times, that the toil of months, the dangers, the sufferings, and the hard money expended go to absolute waste. Twenty or thirty thousand plants or more an honest man collects, brings them down from the mountains or the forests, packs carefully, and ships. The freight alone may reach from three to eight hundred pounds. I have personally known instances when it exceeded five hundred. The cases arrive in England, and not a living thing therein. A steamship company may reduce its charge under such circumstances, but again and again it will happen that the speculator stands out of a thousand pounds clean when his boxes are opened. He may hope to recover it on the next cargo, but that is still a question of luck. No wonder that men whose business is not confined to orchids withdrew from the risks of importation, returning to roses and lilies and daffodowndillies with a new enthusiasm. There is another point also which has varying force with different characters. The loss of life among those men who go out collecting has been greater proportionately than in any class of which I have heard. In former times, at least, they were chosen haphazard among intelligent and trustworthy employees of the firm. Trustworthiness was a grand point, for reasons hinted. The honest youth, not very strong perhaps in an English climate, went bravely forth into the unhealthiest parts of unhealthy lands, where food is very scarce and very, very rough, where he was wet through day after day for weeks at a time, where the fever of varied sort comes as regularly as Sunday, where from month to month he found no one with whom to exchange a word. I could make out a startling list of the martyrs of orchidology, among Mr. Sanders' collectors alone, Falkenberg perished at Panama, Kleboch in Mexico, Andres at Rio Hacha, Wallace in Ecuador, Schroeder in Sierra Leone, Arnold on the Orinoco, Digants in Brazil, Brown in Madagascar. Sir Trevor Lawrence mentions a case where the zealous explorer waded for a fortnight up to his middle in mud, searching for a plant he had heard of. I have not identified this instance of devotion, but we know of rarities which would demand perseverance and sufferings almost equal to secure them. If employers could find the heart to tempt a fellow creature into such risks, the chances are that it would prove bad business. For to discover a new or valuable orchid is only the first step in a commercial enterprise. It remains to secure the article, to bring it safely into a realm that may be called civilized, to pack it and superintend its transport through the sweltering lowland to a shipping place. If the collector sicken after finding his prize, these cares are neglected, more or less. If he die, all comes to a full stop. Thus it happens that the importing business has been given up by one firm after another. Odontoglossums, as I said, belong to America, to the mountainous parts of the continent in general. Though it would be wildly rash to pronounce which is the loveliest of orchids, no man with eyes would dispute that O. crispum alexandri 
is the queen of this genus. She has her home in the states of Columbia, and those who seek her make Bogota their headquarters. If the collector wants the broad-petalled variety, he goes about ten days to the southward, before commencing operations. If the narrow-petalled, about two days to the north, on mule-back, of course. His first care on arrival in the neighbourhood, which is unexplored ground, if such he can discover, is to hire a wood, that is, a track of mountain clothed more or less with timber. I have tried to procure one of these leases, which must be odd documents, but orchid farming is a close and secret business. The arrangement concluded in legal form, he hires natives, twenty or fifty or a hundred, as circumstances advise, and sends them to cut down trees, building meantime a wooden stage of sufficient length to bear the plunder expected. This is used for cleaning and drying the plants brought in. Afterwards, if he be prudent, he follows his lumbermen, to see that their indolence does not shirk the big trunks, which give extra trouble naturally, though they yield the best and largest return. It is a terribly wasteful process. If we estimate that a good tree has been felled for every three scraps of odontoglossum which are now established in Europe, that will be no exaggeration, and for many years past they have been arriving by hundreds of thousands annually. But there is no alternative. An European cannot explore that green wilderness overhead. If he could, his accumulations would be so slow and costly as to raise the proceeds to an impossible figure. The natives will not climb, and they would tear the plants to bits. Timber has no value in these parts as yet, but the day approaches when government must interfere. The average yield of Odontoglossum crispum per tree is certainly not more than five large and small together. Once upon a time Mr. Kerbach recovered fifty-three at one felling, and the incident has grown into a legend. Two or three is the usual number. Upon the other hand, fifty or sixty of O. Gloriosum, comparatively worthless, are often secured. The cutters receive a fixed price of sixpence for each orchid, without reference to species or quality. When his concession is exhausted, the traveller overhauls the produce carefully, throwing away those damaged pieces which would ferment in the long hot journey home and spoil the others. When all are clean and dry, he fixes them with copper wire on sticks which are nailed across boxes for transport. Long experience has laid down rules for each detail of this process. The sticks, for example, are one inch in diameter, fitting into boxes two feet three inches wide, two feet deep, neither more nor less. Then the long file of mules sets out for Bogota, perhaps ten days' march, each animal carrying two boxes, a burden ridiculously light, but on such tracks it is dimension which has to be considered. On arrival at Bogota, the cases are unpacked and examined for the last time, restowed and consigned to the muleteers again. In six days they reach Honda on the Magdalena River where until lately they were embarked on rafts for a journey of fourteen days to Savanilla. At the present time an American company has established a service of flat-bottomed steamers, which cover the distance in seven days, thus reducing the risks of the journey by one half. But they are still terrible. Not a breath of wind stirs the air at that season, for the collector cannot choose his time. The boxes are piled on deck. Even the pitiless sunshine is not so deadly as the stewing heat below. He has a score of blankets to cover them, on which he lays a thatch of palm-leaves, and all day long he souses the pile with water. But too well the poor fellow knows that mischief is busy down below. 
another anxiety possesses him too it may very well be that on arrival at savanilla he has to wait days in that sweltering atmosphere for the royal mail steamer and when it comes in his troubles do not cease for the stowage of the precious cargo is vastly important on deck it will almost certainly be injured by salt water in the hold it will ferment amidships it is apt to be baked by the engine fire whilst writing i learn that mr sander has lost two hundred and sixty-seven cases by this latter mishap as is supposed so utterly hopeless is their condition that he will not go to the expense of overhauling them they lie at southampton and to anybody who will take them away all parties concerned will be grateful the expense of making this shipment a reader may judge from the hints given the royal mail company's charge for freight from manzanilla is seven hundred and fifty pounds i could give an incident of the same class yet more startling with reference to phalaenopsis it is proper to add that the most enterprising of assurance companies do not yet see their way to accept any kind of risks in the orchid trade importers must bear all the burden to me it seems surprising that the plants can be sold so cheap all things considered many persons think and hope that prices will fall and that may probably happen with regard to some genera but the shrewdest of those very shrewd men who conduct the business all look for a rise odontoglossum harianum always reminds me in such an odd association of ideas as every one has experienced of a thunderstorm the contrast of its intense brown blotches with the azure throat and the broad snowy lip affect me somehow with admiring oppression very absurd but on effet comme ça as nana excused herself to call this most striking flower harianum is grotesque the public is not interested in those circumstances which give the name significance for a few and if there be any flower which demands an expressive title it is this in my judgment possibly it was some indian report which had slipped his recollection that led roezl to predict the discovery of a new odontoglot unlike any other in the very district where odontoglossum harianum was found after his death though the story is quoted as an example of that instinct which guides the heaven-born collector the first plants came unannounced in a small box sent by senor pantoja of colombia to messier horseman in eighteen eighty five and they were flowered next year by messier veitch the dullest who sees it can now imagine the excitement when this marvel was displayed coming from an unknown habitat Roezl's prediction occurred to many of his acquaintance, I have heard, but Mr. Sander had a living faith in his old friend's sagacity. Forthwith he dispatched a collector to the spot which Roezl had named, but not visited, and found the treasure. The legends of orchidology will be gathered one day, perhaps, and if the editor be competent, his volume should be almost as interesting to the public as to the cognoscenti. I have been speaking hitherto of Colombian odontoglossums, which are reckoned among the hardiest of their class. Along with them, in the same temperature, grow the cool mass devalias, which probably are the most difficult of all to transport. There was once a grand consignment of mass devalia schlimii, which Mr. Roezl dispatched on his own account. It contained twenty-seven thousand plants of this species, representing at that time a fortune Mr. Roezl was the luckiest and most experienced of collectors, and he took special pains with this unique shipment. 
Among twenty-seven thousand, two bits survived when the cases were opened. The agent hurried them off to Stevens's auction rooms, and sold them forthwith at forty guineas each. But I must stick to odontoglossums. Speculative as is the business of importing the northern species, to gather those of Peru and Ecuador is almost desperate. The roads of Colombia are good, the population civilised, conveniences abound. If we compare that region with the orchid-bearing territories of the south, there is a fortune to be secured by anyone who will bring to market a lot of Odontoglossum nevium in fair condition. Its habitat is perfectly well known. I am not aware that it has a delicate constitution, but no collector is so rash or so enthusiastic as to try that adventure again now that its perils are understood, and no employer is so reckless as to urge him. The true variety of O. Hallii stands in much the same case. To obtain it, the explorer must march in the bed of a torrent, and on the face of a precipice alternately, for an uncertain period of time, with a river to cross about every day, and he has to bring back his loaded mules, or Indians, over the same pathless waste. The Roraima mountain begins to be regarded as quite easy travel for the orchid hunter nowadays. If I mention that the canoe work on this route demands thirty-two portages, thirty-two loadings and unloadings of the cargo, the reader can judge what a difficult road must be. Ascending the Roraima, Mr. Dressel, collecting for Mr. Sander, lost his herbarium in the Essequibo River. Savants alone are able to estimate the awful nature of the crisis when a comrade loses his grip of that treasure. For them it is needless to add that everything else went to the bottom. One is tempted to linger among the odontoglots, though time is pressing. In no class of orchids are natural hybrids so mysterious and frequent. Sometimes one can detect the parentage. In such cases, doubtless, the crossing occurred but a few generations back. As a rule, however, such plants are the result of breeding in and in from age to age, causing all manner of delightful complications. How many can trace the lineage of Mr. Bull's Odontoglossum delectabile? Ivory-white, fringed with rose, strikingly blotched with red, and showing a golden labellum. Or Mr. Sanders' Odontoglossum alberti edwardi, which has a broad soft margin of gold about its stately petals. Another is rosy-white, closely splashed with pale purple, and dotted round the edge with spots of the same tint so thickly placed that they resemble a fringe. Such marvels turn up in an importation without the slightest warning. No peculiarity betrays them until the flowers open, when the lucky purchaser discovers that a plant for which he gave perhaps a shilling is worth an indefinite number of guineas. Lycaste also is a genus peculiar to America, such a favourite among those who know its merits, that the species Lycaste skinneri is called the drawing-room flower. Professor Reichenbach observes in his superb volume that many people utterly ignorant of orchids grow this plant in their miscellaneous collection. I speak of it without prejudice, for to my mind the bloom is stiff, heavy, and poor in colour, but there are tremendous exceptions. In the first place, Lycaste skinneri alba, the pure white variety, beggars all description. Its great flower seems to be sculptured in the snowiest of transparent marble. That stolid pretentious air which offends one, offends me at least, 
in the coloured examples, becomes virginal dignity in this case. Then, of the normal type, there are more than a hundred variations recognised, some with lips as deep in tone and as smooth in texture as velvet, of all shades from maroon to brightest crimson. It will be understood that I allude to the common forms in depreciating this species. How vast is the difference between them their commercial value shows. Plants of the same size and the same species range from three shillings and sixpence to thirty-five guineas or more indefinitely. Lycastes are found in the woods, of Guatemala especially, and I have heard no such adventures in the gathering of them as attend odontoglossums. Easily obtained, easily transported, and remarkably easy to grow, of course they are cheap. A man must really give his mind to it to kill a lycaste. This counts for much, no doubt, in the popularity of the genus, but it has plenty of other virtues. Lycaste skinneri opens in the depth of winter, and all the rest, I think, in the dull months. Then they are profuse of bloom, throwing up half a dozen spikes, or in some species a dozen, from a single bulb and the flowers last a prodigious time. Their extraordinary thickness in every part enables them to withstand bad air and changes of temperature, so that ladies keep them on a drawing-room table night and day for months, without change perceptible. Mr. Williams names an instance where a Lercasti Skinneri, bought in full bloom on February the 2nd, was kept in a sitting-room till May the 18th, when the purchaser took it back, still handsome, I have heard cases more surprising. Of species somewhat less common, there is Lycaste aromatica, a little gem which throws up an indefinite number of short spikes, each crowned with a greenish-yellow triangular sort of cup, deliciously scented. I am acquainted with no flower that excites such enthusiasm among ladies who fancy Messieurs Liberty's style of toilette. Sad experience tells me that Ten commandments, or twenty, will not restrain them from appropriating it. Lycaste cruenta is almost as tempting. As for Lycaste lucanthi, an exquisite combination of pale green and snow white, it ranks with Lycaste skinneri alba as a thing too beautiful for words. This species has not been long introduced, and at the moment it is dear proportionately. There is yet another virtue of the Lycaste which appeals to the expert. It lends itself readily to hybridization. This most fascinating pursuit attracts few amateurs as yet, and the professionals have little time or inclination for experiments. They naturally prefer to make such crosses as are almost certain to pay. Thus it comes about that the hybridization of Lycastes has been attempted but recently, and none of the seedlings, so far as I can learn, have flowered. They have been obtained, however, in abundance, not only from direct crossing, but also from alliance with Zygopetalum, Anguloa, and Maxillaria. End of section 5